previously on Life on the Ark. All I can tell you is I've been doing this for 47 years. And if you, as, a, as an individual, you know, working your way through life, have you ever noticed people, take it from a law enforcement officer, that overly love, that overly do it, sometimes are the ones you have to watch. Maybe something's going wrong here a little bit. If you loved your animals, don't love them to death. My name is Kelly Swope. This is Life on the Ark, Part 4, One Earth, 1,000 Noahs. If Terry Thompson loved his animals to death, then the state of Ohio failed to love them to life. A look at the overall system of animal ownership prior to 2011, from private zoos to commercial breeders to exotic auctions and pet expos, gives the impression that a Zanesville-like mass escape was bound to happen somewhere at some point. 270 Kopchak Road was neither the largest private collection, nor Terry Thompson the only mentally unraveling zookeeper in the region. Many other Ohioans shared his passions and his ideology. There were numerous Midwestern Noahs in Dayton, in Cleveland, in Massillon, and Toledo, guarding their private arcs against a wicked government in a wicked world. The system appeared to be buckling under its own contradictions, before Terry Thompson even got out of jail. First among these contradictions was a freedom-loving lifestyle based on holding other life forms captive. The libertarian excesses of exotic animal ownership were finally producing the equal and opposite reaction of public surveillance, from animal rights activists to federal government officials to the paranoid, self-policing minds of owners themselves. A second contradiction was how the private management of captive wildlife produced so many collateral deaths, mostly animals' deaths, but increasingly human ones as well. In the summer of 2010, a young worker in northern Ohio died in a violent attack by a captive bear. That same year, a Dayton-area first responder succumbed to a lethal bite from his pet viper. And they weren't the only ones. Municipal governments were struggling without state support to exile their reptilian and mammalian interlopers. Word of these problems eventually reached the governor's mansion in Columbus, but not in time to avert disaster. The story of how Ohio's political leadership, juggling various special interests, failed to stop the bleeding is a stunning but little-known early chapter in the Zanesville tragedy. Governor Strickland, the previous governor, signed a bill right before, several hours before he went out of office. Governor Casey came in, got me, we got committees formed to start taking care of all this. We were about probably six weeks away from finalizing this. Harrison, Outreach for Animals. We have no laws. We have, think about it this way, Kelly, we have five AZA zoos, which I'm not against AZA zoos. The accredited zoos are taking good care of their animals. They do a good job. But we have five of them in our state, a small state like Ohio. Then we have literally hundreds of roadside zoos, which people would put up, sign up and say, come pet my bear. 
six tigers in the backyard you can come see or come get your picture taken with a python. And then we had the breeders. We had the breeders and the exploiters. The people had like puppy mills for these animals because there was no laws, no laws in our state, nothing to stop people from breeding tigers in their backyard or bringing cobras in their apartment building, as in Cleveland. We went up there to help them pass legislation up. That was the first major city that I helped pass legislation on because they had a guy, he was breeding cobras in an apartment building uh, downtown, and he didn't have anything to stop him. So it was one of those situations where uh, these animals and with the people, you know, I always tell everybody, it's not a python problem. It's not a tiger problem. It's a people problem. And that's when we have the situation. The situation Tim Harrison is describing is the virtually unregulated economic circuit through which countless thousands of exotic animals flowed for decades before Zanesville. Scattershot across Ohio's 88 counties, the circuit consisted of hundreds if not thousands of pet owners, commercial breeding facilities, auctions and expos, sanctuaries and rescue facilities, and private zoos. It also included Ohio's five major urban zoos, Toledo, Akron, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus, all of whom belonged to the American Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the top industry accreditor for zoological parks. The lack of laws did not just benefit the shadiest players in the circuit. For a long time, even some industry-accredited zoos had indirect ties to Ohio's animal trade, discarding their surplus newborns and elders with privately licensed dealers, who then carried them off to auction. At Mount Hope, an Amish country livestock auction that hosted exotic sales, vendors sold everything from rare reptiles and venomous snakes to Alaskan bears and African lions. Under Ohio's bare-bones laws, any person could go to auction and buy any exotic animal without presenting any license to care for those creatures. As long as exotics owners did not profit from their animals, say by trading them out of state or selling tickets to private exhibitions, the federal government took as little interest in their activities as the state of Ohio did. Most Ohio owners were non-commercial and flew under the radar of state and federal statutes. The United States Department of Agriculture, the agency charged with enforcing federal statutes, required commercial operators to obtain special licenses to exhibit and sell animals. With commercial licensing came the legal requirement to comply with the Animal Welfare Act and Endangered Species Act. Businesses were supposed to provide animals, and especially endangered species, with a decent captive life, free of exploitation and abuse. Yet the actual political economy of Ohio's animal industry incentivized open defiance of federal statutes when it came to iconic fauna like lions and tigers. Because newborns were easier to control, transport, and sell than adults, the incentive for commercial operators was to produce or be in possession of a steady supply of younger animals. This meant they had to find ways to offload their adult animals into other people's hands. Suffice it to say that some commercial dealers were more scrupulous than others when it came to looking out for the well-being of their discards. Tim Harrison became acquainted with the Ohio exotic circuit as a teenager when he took a job with a Dayton area veterinarian who provided emergency animal care. Years later, when Tim worked as a police officer and paramedic in the city of Oakwood, he responded to hundreds of animal-related emergencies. 
He says that he noticed a major uptick in calls starting in the mid-1990s, a period when animal entertainment shows were ubiquitous on cable television. Some of the things Tim saw, a tiger escaping during a house fire, a colleague killed by a snake, caused him to view the private ownership of wildlife as a significant public safety issue. To amplify his message, Tim started a nonprofit called Outreach for Animals to offer aid to struggling Ohio animal owners. At first, Tim envisioned his organization's mission as primarily educational. It was about teaching proper behavior around wildlife. Over time, though, in addition to being an education resource, Outreach for Animals became a rescue team, a veterinary charity, and a political advocacy group, all rolled into one. If Tim is adamant about one point, it is that human beings, not the creatures they owned, were Ohio's main problem. Yes, certain dangerous species could pose a public safety risk when they were kept in captivity, but who brought them there in the first place? Who bred them and profited from trading them? Who loved them to death? Human beings created Ohio's mess. You can't fault a tiger for acting like a tiger, Tim likes to say. That's why he identifies himself first and foremost as a human animal advocate rather than an animal rights activist. The thing is, is you've got to go through the human beings. You've got to touch their heart to be able to help the animals. That's the only way it's going to work, and that's the same in the whole world. If you want climate change, you want something done, you want thing, you've got to touch the hearts of humans to get that done, or it's not going to get done. So it's human-animal in that order. That's the only way things can be taken care of. In 2010, Tim became a person of interest in the Ohio animal circuit by starring in a documentary titled The Elephant in the Living Room. Directed by his friend Michael Weber, the documentary focuses on the human toll of owning venomous snakes and apex carnivores. A lion owner from Southern Ohio named Terry Brumfield, not to be confused with Terry Thompson of Zanesville, is at the center of the drama alongside Tim. After learning about Brumfield and his lions, Tim seeks the man out to offer support. The personal relationship, even friendship, that Tim develops with Brumfield who started raising lions as a form of therapy for his depression, exemplifies Tim's approach to human-animal advocacy. Terry is an individual that actually, he is the lion man. If you looked at the film, he starts, he actually starts turning into looking like the cowardly lion off the, off the Wizard of Oz. His hair gets longer, his beard gets bushier. He is the lion man. When he went to town, they called him the lion man. So he lived his life through those cats. That was what made him kind of uh, famous in this area, kind of uh, a local celebrity. And um, he, he loved those animals. He literally loved them. I can tell you for a fact, uh, Terry is one of the few that touched my heart to the point where I still to this day, I miss him so much just to talk to him. Because he was such a wise guy and a really smart guy. And he was just a, you know, a really beautiful man. But he made a mistake. He, this is typical story of somebody that buys himself knee-jerk reaction, sees something on TV, see, wants to be the lion man, wants to be a tiger man, wants to be a cobra man, and they go out and get this animal, and they don't know how to save face. There's nobody there to, to say, don't do it, and then there's too many people out there telling them, like he said in the film, you put that tiger cub in your hands just for a few minutes, you're going to want to take it home. And that is so true, so true, ask anybody. While hopeful in some respects, the elephant in the living room also shows the limitations of Tim's one-on-one -on -one human-animal advocacy. Tim himself always understood this well. 
He says it used to take him months and sometimes years to build the kind of rapport with someone that enabled him to influence their thinking about owning animals, to educate them without them realizing they're being educated, to let them make the decision to change for themselves. Working at the speed of trust, Tim never had enough time to make a difference on the scale he wanted. There were not enough people like him, nor organizations like Outreach for Animals, who could put in the labor to reach the thousands of Terry Brumfields across Ohio who needed help. Nor was every owner, especially the ones with commercial interests at stake, reachable through Tim's empathetic style of advocacy. Tim always understood that a larger legal solution in a diverse political coalition was necessary to bring Ohio's thousand floating arcs back to dry land. the elephant in the living room came out, Ohio was on the brink of some major animal law reforms. But the winds of change did not come from the direction Tim Harrison might have expected. It was the issue of how to treat Ohio's untold millions of agricultural animals, the stowaway sufferers on our industrial farms, that brought the state's lackluster laws to the government's attention. Here's what happened. The Humane Society of the United States had just helped pull off a major 2008 ballot victory in California. Called Proposition 2, the law established higher care standards for livestock and poultry in factory farms. Specifically, Proposition 2 prohibited, quote, the confinement of pregnant pigs, calves raised for veal, and egg-laying hens in a manner that does not allow them to turn around freely, lie down, stand up, and fully extend their limbs, end quote. Sounds pretty baseline, right? Yet Proposition 2 received united opposition from the U.S. farm industry. Even so, the measure passed with landslide support from California voters, stoking fears in the industry that a domino effect would follow in other states. Anticipating the Humane Society's pivot to the Midwest, an industry group called the Ohio Farm Bureau promoted a new state constitutional amendment that empowered Ohio's governor to appoint a Livestock Care Standards Board to set rules for the industry. The amendment, which described the board's mission in progressive-sounding, welfare-oriented language, passed easily with Ohio voters in 2009. The Humane Society opposed the amendment on the grounds that it was a political ploy to use Ohio's constitution to put the farm industry in charge of its own regulation. And they were right. The first livestock care board appointed by Governor Ted Strickland saved a majority of seats for people with financial ties to big agriculture. In a bold countermaneuver, the Humane Society put forward a 2010 ballot measure that, had it been brought to a vote, would have forced the state's livestock board to adopt welfare regulations like the ones in California. The last thing the farm industry wanted was to risk giving voters an up or down choice on progressive animal reforms. So, the Ohio Farm Bureau and Governor Ted Strickland invited the Humane Society to the negotiating table to see if a deal could be struck before the November 2010 election. The result of these negotiations was the so-called Buckeye Compromise, an agreement signed in July 2010 by the Humane Society and Ohio Farm Bureau that distributed some victories and defeats to both sides. The Humane Society agreed to withhold its November ballot issue and endorse the Livestock Board, 
on the condition that the board implemented some baseline animal welfare changes over a 15-year period. Additionally, the Humane Society forced the Farm Bureau and Governor Strickland to voice their support for several causes opposed by other Ohio animal owners, including felony charges for cockfighters, the elimination of so-called puppy mills, and, the kicker, immediate executive action to restrict the ownership and breeding of dangerous wild animals. Kathy Cowan-Becker, a Humane Society volunteer who followed these events closely, says Ted Strickland's Buckeye Compromise drove a wedge into the formerly solid alliance between Ohio's corporate farmers, puppy millers, and exotics traders. Whereas before, these people generally supported each other's policies, now exotics owners' interests had taken a back seat to big agriculture's. They made this uh, deal on the farm animal welfare regulations, but also made a deal that they would pass future laws regulating puppy mills and owners, private ownership of dangerous wild animals. And so the Farm Bureau didn't really talk to these other animal interests when they did that. They just made that deal because they did not want to have to fight this. Um, you know, the HSUS would have brought this constitutional amendment to the ballot, which probably would have passed because it's a very popular proposal. And it would have been a $10 million campaign for each side to run that statewide. And neither side really wanted to do that if they could come to an agreement, and so they did. And so the exotic um, animal breeders and dealers basically felt that they had been sold out by their allies. Polly Britton, a spokesperson for a group called the Ohio Association of Animal Owners, panned the Buckeye Compromise as a disgrace and a betrayal by the Farm Bureau. Some in the animal protection movement felt they had been betrayed, too. Instead of forcing immediate changes to the farm industry, the Humane Society settled for a gradual phase-in of their demands, plus the two promissory notes for puppy mills and exotic animals. Activist concerns were validated somewhat when Governor Ted Strickland did not act expediently to fulfill the promises he made to the state's exotic animals. Something, whether it was political caution or just bureaucratic red tape, was slowing everything down. Denise Flores got involved in exotics ownership, not for its profitability, but because she found a sense of purpose in caring for big cats that had been discarded by the system. Denise started working with big cats back in the 1990s at a drive through wildlife park in Texas called Noah's Land. It was the incomparable experience of holding a newborn tiger in her arms that made Denise want to have one of her own. Like Ohio, Texas had very permissive laws for animal ownership, so permissive, in fact, that today there are many more captive tigers in Texas than wild tigers in Asia. Seizing the opportunity, Denise and her husband, Jose, acquired four Texas tigers before moving their family to Ohio, where they could live how they wanted without government interference. The couple took jobs at a wildlife park in northern Ohio called Noah's Lost Ark and eventually purchased a parcel of land in Ashland County. They called their place the Tiger Paw Exotic Rescue and Rehabilitation Center, opening it to a limited number of paying visitors and donors who wanted to contribute to the cat's upkeep. They ran it like a sanctuary, Denise claims, 
although they never sought official nonprofit status. Instead, they worked under a USDA commercial license that allowed them to charge admission. A few years into their Ashland County life, one of the Flores' family tigers, Taz, became pregnant by Tika, a male they had long believed was sterile. Every cub but one in Taz's litter died. Denise named the survivor Katie, and the Flores family grew to two humans and five tigers, and it was not done growing. So we had Sammy Delilah, Taz and Tika, and Katie, and then we got a cougar that was, um, uh, she escaped from a garage in Loudonville, Ohio, or Danville, Ohio. She was living in a man's garage, and I guess um, his roof rotted in the garage and collapsed, and the cat crawled out the hole in the roof. And um, the sheriff's department called us and asked, told us they were going to kill her, and um, did, did I have any suggestions? And I asked them to wait till I got there. And um, we were able to bait her back into the garage, and I went in there with chicken and put, him in a, put her in a, in a large dog crate. I was able to get her into a large dog crate, which was crazy. And we were able to um, get her transported um, back to our place. And, of course, it was hurry up and throw something up because we didn't have um, enclosures ready for, you know, we didn't know we were going to be getting her, you know. Like many private owners who viewed themselves as rescuers, Denise took on someone else's responsibility as her own. There were significant costs to pairing rescue and private ownership, however. Money, for starters, was always tight, which meant that the Floreses could not invest in all the cage upgrades they wanted to make. What's more, their neighbors in Ashland began to complain about living so close to so many large carnivores. The Humane Society of the United States was keeping close tabs on tiger paw rescue, too. In an April 2011 report titled Ohio's Fatal Attractions, the Humane Society listed Denise and Jose's place in a catalog of Ohio facilities known to keep dangerous wild animals. The catalog quoted some recent USDA reports that cited the Floreses for failing to uphold safety standards in some of their cages. Facing these criticisms from animal protectionists turned Denise off to the organized segment of the movement. After all, she saw herself as an animal rescuer. It was owners like her, responsible people, she calls them, who showed up during emergencies like the one with the Danville Cougar. And it was owners like her who could do some good at the irresponsible commercial facilities, ones like World Animal Studios in Columbia Station, where the owner, Sam Mazzola, had a reputation for disciplining his bears with a baseball bat. Before Terry Thompson, Sam Mazzola was arguably the most notorious exotic animal owner in Ohio. For years, Mazzola owned a business called World Animal Studios that put on shows at shopping malls and private parties. Because he had a commercial operation, Mazzola was required to maintain a USDA license, yet his business repeatedly violated the Animal Welfare Act. In one highly publicized 2006 incident, for example, Mazzola hired a local high school wrestling champion to spar with one of his black bears in front of a live audience. To the consternation of animal protection groups like PETA, 
Mazzola was allowed to flaunt his lack of concern for animal and human welfare right in front of USDA inspectors, one of whom actually attended the wrestling event, but apparently had no authority to stop it. Yet nothing earned Mazzola more public notoriety than the way he departed this world. Pursued by various lawsuits near the end of his life, Mazzola was ordered by a judge to seek mental health treatment for his erratic behavior with humans and animals alike. On July 10, 2011, Mazzola was found dead in his home, bound to a waterbed with chains, handcuffs, and padlocks. A police investigation revealed the cause of death to be asphyxiation from a miscarried sex act. Denise Flores worked at Mazzola's World Animal Studios before the U.S. Department of Agriculture shut it down in 2009. Her descriptions of what passed for business as usual at Sam's Place are chilling. When we used to work there, we would go into the barn. So you walk into a barn, and there were cages in that barn full of bears. There was like, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe ten cages, small little cages, and he used the horse stalls as cages for a few of them. And those bears never got outside. How can an animal live its entire life in a barn, in a little stall, and just have food and water thrown to it? That's no life for an animal. I couldn't handle that. I never liked taking care of the bears, ever, because the, the system was not good. Living in these awful conditions caused Mazzola's bears to lash out at their human handlers. Denise heard that once, at a county fair, a female bear struck Mazzola's face with its paw, leaving him with a wound that required over a hundred stitches to close. Another time, an aggravated male bear, one that Denise avoided at all costs when she worked at World Animal Studios, attacked and killed one of Sam's workers, 24-year-old Brent Kandra. I know what bear attacked Brent, and he was a wild kind of thing. And he was in a, uh, like a cage that had, like, you know how jail bars are? He was in a cage like that, and you could never leave the bucket of water. He had a, a slot that you would slide that bucket of water in there. Once that bear was done drinking, you had to pull that bucket out because he would somehow reach through that slot and grab that bucket and destroy it. He was, uh, uh, to me, aggressive. And they're all, I mean, what kind of mental state do you think those animals are in that have lived in that barn all their life? Oh, my God. It, it was just crazy. Brent Kandra died in that bear attack on August 19, 2010 the same summer that Governor Ted Strickland promised to issue an executive order about exotic animals. The young man's death shined a spotlight on the sordid conditions in Ohio's private zoos and caused such an outcry that the Democratic governor could not ignore it. Strickland waited until after his failed re-election bid, which he lost to Republican John Kasich, to fulfill his end of the Buckeye Compromise. In January of 2011, on his last day in office, Strickland issued a lame-duck executive order that contained everything exotic animal advocates wanted, short of an outright ban. Limits on future ownership and trading, permit requirements for existing owners, the deputizing of the Department of Natural Resources, the state agency specializing in wildlife management, to enforce it. It took decades longer than it should have, but the state of Ohio, it seemed, 
was finally moving in the right direction. But change came too slowly. John Kasich became Ohio's 69th governor on January 10, 2011. Ninety days later, the GOP leader let Governor Strickland's executive order time out, despite having nothing ready to replace it. Animal advocates, among them Tim Harrison, were livid. All his efforts helping struggling owners, filming documentaries, lobbying the previous governor's office, now seemed for naught. Why would Governor Kasich roll back the clock on Ohio's hard-won progress? As he faced the public, Kasich shielded himself behind two major stakeholders who influenced his decision to drop the order. The first was the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, or ODNR, who claimed they lacked the legal authority to enforce the ban. It wasn't clear, they said, that their agency, which dealt with wild animals, had jurisdiction over animals classed as private property. The second outspoken stakeholder was Jack Hanna of the Columbus Zoo. Hanna apparently advised Kasich that Strickland's order did not adequately consider the interests of private animal breeders who provided an important service to the zoo entertainment industry. Jack Hanna's advisory role to the Kasich administration in the months before the Zanesville catastrophe is a striking part of this story. Just months before showing up in Zanesville to help the sheriff's office clean up Terry Thompson's mess, the public face of Ohio zoos appears to have been advising the new governor to consider the interests of private breeders like Terry Thompson's friend, Cindy Huntsman, who bred tigers at Stumphill Farm in Massillon. Stumphill Farm's website claims that Jack Hanna used to take their animals on late-night TV shows, and according to GQ magazine, Terry Thompson sometimes worked under Cindy Huntsman's USDA credentials to rent out animals for entertainment gigs. The fact that they both apparently knew some of the same people does not establish that Jack Hanna and Terry Thompson knew each other personally, or even that Hanna knew of Thompson's dire situation. But the fact that Hanna appears to have worked with private breeders before 2011 and was considering their interests makes it unlikely that he was ignorant of Ohio's problems before he showed up in Zanesville. One thing that is certain is that Hanna's colleagues at the Columbus Zoo knew what was going on at the Thompson farm years before 2011 they had inspected it themselves on multiple occasions. How did such knowledge at the highest levels of Ohio's zoological industry not lead to political action sooner? A crisis like the Thompsons was not created overnight. It took Ohio decades to develop the system of breeding, trading, and discarding that produced the Zanesville catastrophe. Ohio's flagship zoos had the resources and the credibility to shape policy. And for a long time, they opted not to. As long as I'm standing here, I'm not the governor, but I'll do everything I can with my dead body to put these people out of business, to shut these auctions down, but also to keep the people that breed these animals that are really good breeders we need. We don't want to shut everybody down. Shut everybody down. Shut everybody down. Shut everybody down. Shut everybody The stories of Tim Harrison, Denise Flores, the Humane Society, and Jack Hanna show that the state of Ohio's unregulated system of exotic animal ownership was all but destined for a tragic collapse. One remarkable thing about it 
was how completely and how invisibly it integrated all levels of ownership, from so-called backyard breeders and rescuers to industry-accredited zoos. Even more remarkable was how much human folly and negligence preceded Terry Thompson's outburst. Year after year, there were opportunities to do something about situations like the one at Kopchak Road. Yet no one, from law enforcement to two governors to the state's premier zoos, could find a way to do it. The only people steadily sounding the alarm about the system's failure were Ohio's animal activists, and people in positions of authority either downplayed their warnings or put other interests first. Zanesville was preventable, and yet, somehow, it was inevitable as well. Life on the Ark was created, written, and narrated by Kelly Swope. Music and production by Benjamin Whitfield Thomas and Benjamin Chicoyan Jones. Art and web design by Claire Flath. Coming up next on Life on the Ark, part five, Rebuilding the Ark. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm convinced now that, that Jack Hanna is going to do everything he can to make sure that exotic animals are treated fairly, 